absolutely the metaphor is a powerful and potent symbol of cross cultures in the cultural background that I practice, both in my Wiccan tradition, I was dedicated to Kerridwen, who's the, the keeper of the cauldron in Celtic myth, to uh, in Lukumi, the cauldron, the caldero, is the vestibule for the Orishas that are the warriors. You receive that in one of the ceremonies. In, in Asian culture, in the Chinese system, it's the Dantians, right? The, the different parts of our body that hold the power, the one, the lower, the lower Dantian is where your chi is, right? So the cauldron for me is where Mother Earth keeps her chi. It's where she keeps her energy and it's her center. It's that fiery core, you know? So to me, like her belly is the cauldron mm -hmm. and relighting it is, relight what's within us to give us that power and passion for life and to change things and to be part of the shift and also to help her get her strength back up. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by ordained interspiritual minister, counselor, and author, Reverend Wendy Van Allen, to discuss her book, Relighting the Cauldron, Embracing Nature's Spirituality in Our Modern World. Wendy and I, a witch and a mather, discuss restoring reverence for the earth, the emerging neo-pagan traditions, nature as the original deity, and the importance of spiritual community. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Reverend Wendy Van Allen is an ordained interspiritual minister and counselor and a practicing spiritist. As a priestess of both the Lukumi and Wiccan traditions, she is a longtime practitioner of nature spirituality. She has a private nature-based spiritual counseling practice and teaching center in New York State. She joins me today to discuss her book, Relighting the Cauldron, Embracing Nature Spirituality in Our Modern World. Wendy, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I, am... I just love your work. Oh, well, thank you. And I really enjoyed your book. Um, and thank I you. think that there is a lot for us to talk about. I think there's a lot of shared common interests. So like I just said, you know, I really enjoyed reading Relighting the Cauldron, and I am very grateful to have this opportunity to speak with you about it. And I think that the importance and the value of a spiritual response to the climate crisis, along with all of these other interconnected and ongoing ecological catastrophes that we find ourselves in is often overlooked when mm -hmm. people discuss solutions to this mess that we've created. So I thought a good place to begin is sort of a general question for you is <clears throat> what do you see the role that spirituality can play in regards to writing our relationship with nature? Well, thank you, Nick. I think that's a great question to start with. And it's kind of goes to the crux of my book, which is that as people that practice nature-based traditions, earth-based traditions, which there are many people that do and from various paths, which I talked about in my book, we, we bring back the most fundamental thing that's missing in Western culture. And that is a 
reverence for the earth and a a knowledge and a appreciation that we that this planet is holy this is this is our mother you know this is our we cannot and even if you don't like the personification idea if you're more of a scientific minded person this is our mother planet you know this is you know we are not separate from her we're like completely dependent on her you know and 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 that relationship we have with not just the earth but with all sentient beings with all of nature like it's an ecosystem it's we're part of it we're not masters over it we're not stewards over it which is what's been the guiding principles for a long time even in its best form we are absolutely at the at the mercy of nature and as climate change begins to really take hold which we know in the next 50 years it's going to really kind of impact how we live getting back to that and bringing that to the consciousness of humanity is first and foremost our most important job right yeah i agree completely with everything you just said and it's i think one of the challenges is that so often we think in terms of technology that there's going to be this technological fix mm. and people will often suggest when I bring up personally, this idea of the importance of spirituality in addressing this, like they, I think they associate it with just mere belief, mm. but there are practices and it develops things like relationship. Yes. And something that I noticed that is that you mentioned a few times, and it's something that I'm really thinking about a lot lately, is the importance of a morality in all of this. So much so. I mean, I think actually it was Reverend Thomas Berry, if you're familiar with him. Remember, yeah. he talked about something beautiful, which was that nature is holy for nature's sake. It's not because it's a commodity. It's not only because of the natural resources it provides for its own sake, for, for that interaction, like you said, that relationship that we can have with nature. I mean, you know, in my, I'm completing my master's in mental health degree right now. Interacting with nature is, is healing to, to humans on every level, you know? So, so I think you're right. Like, we are coming out of the scientific revolution, right? We're coming out of that phase. And it was fantastic. I talk about that in my book. I'm very, you know, science is important. It actually broke us from some of the negative superstitions that was around traditional religions. But we have to realize there's limitations with science. And one of them is taking out that, what you can't quantify, that belief. And, and seeing it as something like putting it back as like primitive or something. And like, why, why do we see it that way? Why do, why do we even have such a judgment on the word primitive even, mm. you know, because in the primitive form of humanity, we were able to have that relationship with the earth and we're lot, we lost it. So we have to get back to it. And what you're speaking to is that when we have that relationship to nature in a spiritual way, it changes our worldview. It changes how we think about everything, not just you know, the earth or the, what, what feeds us, but each other, you know, it's like everything changes when you can have a relationship with nature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a few things that you just said that I want to dig into as we go forward. But one of the things that I wanted to address pretty quickly up front is that 
and, and I want to be very careful here. I, I think that what I'm going to ask you here is vitally important, but it can be a little bit sensitive. And I, and I mm-hmm. want to be careful because I've seen how this can be very easily misunderstood. And that is that when we go, when we look back even further than the Abrahamic traditions or the mm-hmm. core, you know, world traditions that we're used to, that, you know, there were, for example, indigenous traditions in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that these were, and I'm going to use strong language here, but they were intentionally destroyed. And mm-hmm. I see it as a form of cultural genocide. Exactly. And this was due to the spread of Christian colonialism and the forced implementation of patriarchal social structures. So I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit what has been lost (laughs) and maybe the efforts to reconstruct or remember what came before. So I think I think everything you said I agree with and I think that's history and that's why history is being so radically repressed by many people in our culture right now that want to forget it for good because people what they forget they you know we will never learn from. What was you know every single human being at some point comes from ancestors that were indigenous. Mm-hmm. And yes, there were indigenous people in Europe and there are still traditions that are extant that are practiced that are like Romuva Romuva people in a lot of the the Slavic countries like Lithuania Latvia like those countries now they're they're like restarting their pagan traditions you know I mean some of those countries they were the later ones like the Scandinavian countries and the Slavic countries they were the latest to convert so the in in the grand scheme of their history, they didn't completely lose out everything that was later forgotten. And, and um, you know, I think one of the big things is, like I said, that connection to the earth as our mother, as sacred, as that connection to the ancestral practices, which is such a tragedy in our culture that it's been demonized. You know, the idea of honoring your ancestors. And I was just listening to your prior podcast this last week about ancestral reverence and how healing it could be and how important it is. I mean, those 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 two aspects of what was lost are so vital to what people have that hole in themselves that, you know, that Western materialism just doesn't fill, you know. And um, another thing that's really important is that in these traditions that were that are indigenous there's always ways to access the divine on your own to have an experience you know and they were very communal they they had to do with coming together on certain holidays like we have one coming up it was called beltane it was the holiday of and for the northern european people they had different names for it but they called it world purgus night in the germanic traditions and these they were ecstatic Right. And there were mystery traditions, too. Right. And a lot of pagan traditions from Europe, they were mystery traditions. People would go into them with kind of a fear and a certain persona and they would have an experience and they would come out changed, you know, with new knowledge, with a new like a a shuffling of their their psyche, really. So so those you know, we had with the rise of the Judeo Christian model, it was removed. That role was held only by priests, and those priests were only male. And over time, a lot of that, you know, and and, and a lot of the, you know, some of the the mystery and the magic 
remained. And that was what they took from the pagans and like became like, you know, for lack of a better word, a synchronism that happened in Roman Catholicism. But a lot of what was lost was demonized and and magic was demonized. Mystical practices were demonized. Ancestor traditions were demonized. It was, you know, it was dealing with the dead. You know, it's like a demon. Those are all demons, you know, and a, a belief that that in re- reincarnation was lost. I mean, from what I've understood and from my research, there was a belief in reincarnation all the way up until like the Nicene, the, the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was a lot lost. And um, it's interesting to me, this pagan resurgence in in among people who have European descent and on my father's side, that's my, you know, that was my uh, original interest. Like my father, you know, I said it in my book, I, I'm, I'm a very American person. You know, yeah. my mother is from Puerto Rico. So I have the Taino blood. I have African blood. I have Spanish blood. And on my father's side, I have Dutch, French, and English and Irish, a lot of Irish, you know? So, <laughs> so, uh, you know, these, all of the, to put it, to, to put a point to it, a lot of what is actually still existing among indigenous people that are still around today, which they really are, we had at some point yeah. in European people. And there's been a hunger for those traditions, which is why I recently read that paganism has surplanted, you know, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism in the United mm. States. It's the second largest growing tradition, wow. people practicing different neo-pagan traditions. So it says something to like why people are are attracted to these traditions. Yeah. You know, one of the things that comes to mind with this is I think that there's a very profound wound that we all Mm. carry. And I can see this, the the origins of that wound going back to that separation. One of the things that was always concerning to me, though, because I had explored Wicca when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. And then I read a book that was like, well, yes, but this really was just created in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And there was something in me at that time where I was like, well, no, I wanted something original. I wanted something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't understand at the time that much of what there was, was lost and that this is a reconstruction. Exactly. But I think it brings up this question that you do address in the book of cultural appropriation. And so I was wondering, you know, how, uh, what role does that play in all of this? How can we be careful and respectful of the traditions that are informing our own spiritualities? I think that's a great question. And it's really important. And in fact, I, when I was writing, when I wrote the book, I had to kind of like struggle with my editor to explain to her why that part about that was so important, you know, and also, like I said, I practice two faith traditions. So on one side, I practice Wiccan. I've been a practicing pagan for years. I've been in the community, but on the other side, I also practice Afro-Caribbean tradition of Lukumi. And I have seen it both. Why it gets, it's, it's enraging for a lot of people in the Santeria community because people just take what they don't understand. You know, they don't, or they feel entitled to it. So first of all, I think that entitlement, I mean, if you think about like the, the, the entitlement is what we want to, to avoid, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes from Western culture and it's very unconscious in a certain way, right? Because what did, what did Western culture do? How did it conquer? How did we colonialize? We took what we wanted, 
-hmm. you know and it was like you know like that the, the show the vikings like they would go they would take they would plunder that you know it was part of their culture it's like mm -hmm. what i like i i want and what i don't want i'm gonna destroy right and and it became this unconscious entitlement this unconscious entitlement and wherever the the colonialist mentality goes that's what it does you know they will destroy what they don't want or demonize it like they do in voodoo right mm -hmm. it's demonized but what they do want they'll appropriate you know and and that's why we get a lot of resistance from people who practice the living traditions that is the difference the reconstructed traditions were were intentionally destroyed and we have to reclaim and like you said sometimes we have to borrow but with the living traditions that have survived which is amazing honor their resilience honor honor where they came from no you know don't take what you aren't entitled to teach you know i think a lot of people they they you know learn a little something about orisha or they learn a little something about native american spirituality or one other living indigenous tradition very popular in this now is to go down to Peru and, and take, you know, uh, different kinds of ethogens and come back mm -hmm. and say, you know, I'm a shaman, right. you know, but, but really, are you entitled to teach that? And what are you doing for that cu culture that, that exists now? How can you help them? Or maybe you can leave the teaching to people that actually represent that culture, that that is their primary culture, you know, and and another thing is the changing like okay like specifically with orisha traditions which come from the yoruba people and western african people that came over in the slave trade you know these traditions do have animal sacrifice in them you know that is part of the tradition and it is something that you know people don't understand but and they fear and it's been demonized but really if you're in the tradition you understand why it's appropriate but some people want to like, oh, I love the Orishas. I'm going to say I dedicate my altar to whichever Orisha, but I don't ever want to do that. I don't, you know, that's not me. I'm I'm a vegan or whatever, you know, and it, that's where it gets muddy is, is not fully understanding or bringing respect to the traditions that you're practicing and really, really giving it time to see, is this right for me, you know, and how could I learn from this? You know, that's the kind of thing. I think cultural appropriation really is when when people have that entitlement that they may not even realize that they're doing that and say, okay, am I entitled to this? Do I really have a right to this? Is there a teacher? Because that's not to say that there aren't teachers that are willing to teach because people, for whatever reason, in their own culture are no longer interested in their ways. You know, so so it, it it's it's something that has to be done intentionally and with respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't remember. I was going through your book and I was trying to find the exact quote. And it was, I believe it was from someone that you interviewed. And in the book, you do interview quite a few people and they're very enlightening. But to what you were just saying, and all apologies to the person who said this, if it wasn't you, but they made the observation that you belong to the tradition. The tradition doesn't belong to you. Ashe, exactly that tradition doesn't belong to me and that was a fantastic like aha moment for me that i will guide me as i go forth you know i may be interested in a lot of traditions i may have respect for them i may want to learn about them study them practice with somebody if i'm invited but do i have the right to claim it teach it and spread it and most of all commodify it market right. it because that's right. where people get really angry yeah. you know yeah yeah. And that's something that, you know, coming from a background in academia and religious studies that was always addressed because 
you know, here I am, you know, middle-aged white guy going into the classroom and I am representing traditions that don't belong to me. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I have to, it's like, well, what's my authority to say this, Right. you know, and yeah. this is why you have to learn like, you know, the languages quite frequently or depend on people who do. And, you know, the people who are within the traditions, you, you want to rely on that. And, and, and I see a lot of times, like you said, people just don't do these things. They're like, right. oh, I like that. So I'm just going to take it and make it mine. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I mean, if you, my undergrad, one of my undergraduate degrees is in anthropology. So that right. participant observation is crucial mm -hmm. to have actually be able to be an authority at all, even if it is academic, you know, being right. able to be part of the community and accept it as such right. is essential. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I, I feel so much more comfortable talking about the Indian religious traditions, having studied some Sanskrit and spent time in South Asia, have real world experience, because I think that otherwise, you know, it's, it's easy to buy a statue, but it's different if you actually know what Ganesh who Ganesh is and mm -hmm. all of that. So I say, as I have a Ganesh altar behind me, mm -hmm. uh <laughs> it, it, Ganesh, you know, and I, and I also talk a lot about like, I do believe that in all the world's traditions, there's so much commonalities, yeah, you know, especially yeah. indig indigenous yeah, beliefs. Yeah. And, you know, some of the, the, the gods in, in the Hindu beliefs, mm -hmm. They match up really well with other right. spirits or yeah. deities or what I th consider is like rays. Like Ganesh yeah. matches up really well with Elegua. Mm. Elegua, the crossroads, the doorway, the, mm. the opening, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like the Greek tradition, that would be Hermes. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, and I agree that there are so many commonalities but one of the, you sort of start the book when you get into the traditions with shamanism and mm -hmm. th there are, you know, issues with that term itself, yep. but I've often thought of the shamanic and I'm using this as a academic category. Same. Um, that's yes. kind of how I get by that. My, I'm talking it's about a academic useful category. word. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. But I see that as kind of the Ur religion that all the other traditions seem to have come out of this kind of shamanism. And I was wondering if you would agree with that. And also if you could maybe say a few words about the shamanic in terms of this nature religion, because I think a lot of people understand that sh the shamanic is deeply connected to the natural world. Yes, I agree with you. The word shaman is problematic for many reasons. A lot of it is cultural appropriation, but shaman, but the way that it's used anthropologically, I think is really accurate. It's a role. It's a role that is, is present in all these indigenous traditions. And the reasons it connects to the natural world is that nature is the original deity. They are everything, you know, the, the, the original humans saw spirit in nature, saw us in that relationship, that interconnection. So the shaman naturally would work with the spirits in nature, right? Would work with the spirits of the dead, you know, and there is a person like that with all different titles, but with that meaning as shaman. And that role is a person that can access power through different means drumming, singing, plant magic, dream magic. They would journey 
they would they would raise energy they would connect with the spirit world they would bring back information they would bring back healing for people they would offer their wisdom they would have a vision you know and it was in, an incredibly important role and it still is to this day you know i was in peru this or the beginning of this year and you know peruvian shamans are are very active and and there aren't just you know weekend warrior workshops you know people yeah. people really value the wisdom that comes from from their shamanic teachers right right yes i recently began working with someone who is was blessed by a peruvian shaman to bring the work here and cool. to do that and the first time i participated in one of these, it was very, very clear to me how authentic it was. And nice. you can kind of tell by, you know, yes, these people need to make a living, but you can also see, you know, how much are they charging for right. a weekend retreat? You know, is it affordable for everybody? Um, do they acknowledge, yes, this was my teacher. This is what I've learned. And everything was grounded in that. Everything That's was great. grounded in that. And one of the things that they said is that, you know, the 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 shaman that they were trained by had said that they actually want this message to come out into the, exactly. the rest of the world yeah for healing purposes yeah because i mean they are in positions of power and and connected to the multiverse right mm -hmm. not just the the world we live in and they know that they know what we know now, like people like you and I and people that listen to your your show, that we have to do something differently. And if that means like the people that are coming, like I said before, they may not find it that 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 that, you know, message can only go out through their own community it has to go out to the greater world because we're all one world. We're all one planet. You know, I one of the greatest quotes, and I think I put it in my book, but I, I can't I think it came from Alberto Velodo. He has a, he said that the shaman said, you know, we have to dream a new dream. Mm. You know, we're dreaming a nightmare. <laughs> like yeah. it's time yeah. for humans and all people that have these visions to, to really create a new dream and to like collectively work together. And, 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 you know, I think that's a, a big part of my book too, is like the practices that come from nature, spirituality can help heal ourselves, but also ultimately we have to think beyond ourselves. We have to create community. That's why things like intentional community, permaculture, sustainability, they all tie in. It's all important because we have to make that worldview shift. We have to like, you know, bring in this information, you know. One thing I'd like to say about the whole role of shaman is that for the for the person who's truly called, it's not fun. You know, like it starts out with a wound, as you were saying before, it starts out with some kind of spiritual emergence, some crisis, some healing that is very difficult to manage and maintain. And in traditional cultures, in indigenous cultures, a person like that is recognized when they're having that and they're trained and they're the what comes through is also honored. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Western culture, because we have such a scientific bias and because any kind of altered states of consciousness are not really highly valued. They're actually feared. Mm -hmm. That is both comes from religion and science that these people end up on the street raving on the subway. You know what I mean? Like there's people that, yes, you know, if you want to look at it again, I have, I'm training to be a, a therapist. So you could say, yes, they're right now they're, you know, they're exhibiting symptoms of mania, psychosis, schizophrenia, you know, but that said, 
if they are able to be, if that message is received in a healthy space, in a way that honors it, how different their experience could be. Is it something they could heal from that could be really healing to them and to their culture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I believe it was the mythologist, Joseph Campbell. I think it was in his book, Myths to Live By. He has a chapter where he's, if I remember, it's been a very long time since I've read this, but he was speaking with a friend or a friend had connected him with an anthropologist and the anthropologist was talking about, or it was a psychologist, excuse me, who was talking about schizophrenia. And Campbell's like, this sounds a lot like the shamanic. And what he wrote was that, and this is to your point of what you were just saying, is that in Western culture, we have this tendency if someone's having that kind of crisis to say, nope, nope, stop. And let's pull them out. Whereas in the indigenous cultures, it's like, no, let's help them through. Amen. (laughs) That's exactly right. In the wound, there's the gift. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and, and so did young Jung's like, yeah. he did so much work and he recognized his work came out of working with schizophrenics. Mm-hmm. He recognized these people were accessing images, symbols, power that came from the collective unconscious that came from yeah. the, the ancient mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. When I think that I don't want to get to the community here in a moment, but I, I kind of want to stay here with this wound and the shadow and whatnot, because I've often thought that what's going on this ecological crisis that we are in is you know it's as within so without it is a reflection of our own psychic wounds and from a sort of shamanic perspective we are in the process of having to undergo one of those very painful initiations oh yeah you know and i think that so true um, And I think that, you know, part of a common theme of these initiations is that the shaman has this experience of being torn apart and then they have to be put back together. So it's a remembering. Yes. Oh, and you're giving me the chills when you're talking about it that way. So I would say to add to everything you just said, when you think about the archetype of mother, right? As we began, mother earth, mother nature, we have the beautiful, loving, caring mother that has guided us for 2000 years that, you know, personifies as the Virgin Mary, that's what's remained, that personifies as, you know, Kuan Yin as these archetypes of loving, caring. But the one who's coming through now and is going to continue to come through is the terrible mother, because mother can change when she needs to. And the terrible mother is Mother Kali, Mm -hmm. is the, the mother that will tear us apart. Right. And she, you know, and in, you know, because you just told me that you study Hindu culture and, and mm-hmm. the Indian cultures that Kali, she cuts through illusion. Mm-hmm. She cuts through with her swords. She tears it all down. Right. You know, she, this is, we, I mean, they said that we're in the Kali Yuga and I think right. I agree with that yeah. completely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and That's I also fine. believe that whole, that concept of like the end times, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I had my own spiritual wound, I was all 21 years old, I had this mixed up vision that everything was backwards. And you know, of course, I was taking a lot of acid at the time. (laughs) But what I ended up having a spiritual emergency, and it was very confusing to me. And it had a lot of because I was raised, you know, Christian, I was raised as an Episcopalian, but I had all these practices that I was bringing in, and I had this emergency. And I realized that, like, there's a lot of power in that fearful idea of the end times, right? Mm. But if you, you know, over time and through much of my own healing, you know, I've realized that, yeah, it's here, 
but it's the end of something. It's the beginning of the next right. cycle. That's right. what it is. The end. And they're always, this is the end of a paradigm and we're in yeah. it, yeah. you know, but what we can do now is to plant the seeds for what we want. And that's where the, you know, community and, and how mm -hmm. the world is that we need to, to heal from, to remember how it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, going to be a very, very painful process for yeah. all of us. And I'm not looking forward to it, but <laughs> in a way I am. And I think it's going to last well beyond my lifetime. Yes, um, it is. But, yeah. But yeah, and I see how, you know, altered states of consciousness or different consciousness is really helpful here mm -hmm. uh, because we need a new kind of consciousness. And, right. um, and that's a whole other conversation because we don't even know what consciousness is really. And, you know, we just think it's something that's here inside of our brains. Whereas right. when we have expand consciousness to the natural world, it gives us a animistic worldview. Right. That everything's alive, that everything has a kind of mind to it. And it'll it's be the field, you know, yeah. we interact with the field. And we are really just a field of energy within the field of energy, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about energy because you do, that's one of the other things that you address is working with energy and energy healing. And I, I wanted to ask if you could just maybe expound upon that a little bit more, the, the role of energy in these energy fields and within the individual healing and the healing of the earth. Well, again, that's part of the toolkit of the shaman, right? Mm -hmm. Is the, the healer, the, the person that can heal with their hands, mm -hmm. that could heal with creating, raising energy, that can charge objects, that could be, you know, there's so many different ways that, people have access to certain kind of healing. And I do, I do think that it's part of the, the evolutionary shift is first reclaiming that power for ourselves. And I think that, you know, I have to say, I have a son, he's uh, going, getting his PhD at Syracuse university right now in physics. Mm. So he kind of teaches me a lot about, you know, what quantum physics is and, you know, things that he's very scientific. He's not woo, but I said, so one of these days we're going to get here, Dylan, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. But, um, you know, there, we, our sense of the world is not real. It's not, it's, we are all energy. We're all waves, you know? So by utilizing like consciously raising energy, directing energy and manipulating our energies and tapping into natural energies, healing energies from the planet, it changes things. I mean, I think a great example is sound healing. Have you ever experienced a sound healing bath? Yes, I have. A former student of mine had one of the most popular sound baths in Los Angeles for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's I, I hadn't even experienced it until very recently. I want to say in the last five years, I was blown away. I was mm -hmm. like, holy cow, you, you, you go in with a certain mind frame and you leave feeling completely changed because mm -hmm. it's sound and sound is waves and, and your body is waves. So it goes in and it, it, it rearranges, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, I, I, for one of my research papers in, in grad school right now, I did a, a research paper on energy healing and there's a lot of evidence for it. There's a lot of skeptics about it in science, but there's plenty of people who believe in it and it's making itself mainstream. I mean, there's places like Sloan Kettering Hospital that are using, you know, Reiki and different types of healing touch in there for people that, you know, cancer victims, people have trauma too, you know, and if you know anything about trauma, trauma is stored in the body. 
you know, the body is where it's like that, the, the famous book, the body keeps the score. So using energy healing can actually help move that trauma through the body. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually why I sought out a shaman or a shamanic practi- a practitioner. I was told by a couple of people that I had blocked energy and mm. I could feel it. And it was interesting. I had acupuncture done. I never had acupuncture yes. done because I that had physical a great pain. energy. Yeah. It was in my body, you know, it was in my back, my shoulder and my arm and the acupuncturist, when I went to see him, he was this little Chinese guy, barely spoke any English, but he was sticking everything in and he kind of bent down. He's like, I'm sorry. You're so sick. Cause your energy, wow. your energy all, I'm like, yes, that's it. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it actually, the, 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 the work I did with the shaman, it really helped to clear all, all of that energy. And so I, I'm a true believer. I, I know that it's there. I know it's real. And I agree that you know, it's, I think the point is, and I think you make this point in the book, it's not that we want to just discard all of Western medicine, but it Mm -hmm. ought to be the joining of forces. Integrated. Exactly. You know, and that's a great point too. Just the Chinese actually preserved their wisdom and their knowledge. You know, they also resisted Western imperial culture for a very long time. So they've been able to hold on to this wisdom and share it with the world, like with acupuncture. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a powerful actually, and and it has some evidence backed, you know, Mm -hmm. research to back it up, you know, but if you look at like what we know from anthropology, there are, there is an, I forget what they call them, but there's an ancient ice man that was discovered in the Alps. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. And he had acupuncture marks. He had meridians marked out on his body and the tattoos that were remained because his skin was preserved. So this could be a wisdom that was more than, you know, was around the entire ancient world that we forgot, that we've forgotten, you know, and I think what happened a lot with, you know, the 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 loss of a lot of this wisdom came from the fear, you know, the baby went out with the bathwater. It was like, okay, there was, of course, there was human sacrifice. There was negative things in the pagan world. You know, there were things that we don't need. We don't need to resurrect. But there was a lot of wisdom that also was feared and and power too. anything where there people couldn't access their own power and their own healing it. You know, we had it. They had to take that out and put it in the hands of those who had power and who they wanted to have power. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point is that with a lot of the you know, the, the, there's always negativity in something, you know, nothing's perfect. Of course. Exactly. And we can actually draw out the positive, you know, even from this exploitative system that we are in, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there's a lot of good things that we can draw from. And you had mentioned that earlier that yeah, Western science has given us amazing things. Right. And we don't want to just abandon, abandon it all and go back to being hunter gatherers. Exactly. But, but yet we also have to, if, if we could take the patriarchal military militaristic mindset out of science, think of what we could do. Yeah. I mean, what, that's the thing. What can we, what are we directing our science technology towards making weapons of war, being at war with each other, you know, sending out space rockets for competition instead of like coming together to explore space as as the human race 
Like, I mean, it's just, if we, it, you gotta like extract the part that's not working, but use the part that is, we could really, we would be able to cure like so many diseases if we can come together. We saw that with COVID. They came yeah. up with that, the, with the, the vaccine pretty quickly when it was needed, you know? Right. So, you know, I mean, people have their, their beliefs about the vaccines. I'm a vaccine believer. I'm not going to be afraid of it. Again, it's science. It's like, it's pretty ancient technology. It's pretty old technology at this point. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I think that people have a valid questioning of what's going on and that's part of the paradigm shift. Everybody's yeah. like, who can we trust? What right. isn't, you know, what, what is, what is actually useful? What is destructive? So that's why we're in such a state of confusion right now. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said that we are in an epistemological crisis because no one really knows what to know. Mm -hmm. And what I tell my students quite often is we just have to get used to the way for a while and be comfortable with that. Right. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and this goes back to something I said earlier about what you're writing is I noticed again, you know, that there was a focus on moral development. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm starting to think of in terms of enlightenment and awakening, mm. because all too often when people use that language of awakening, it is connected to knowledge. Mm. And it seems like it's just like, well, I'm waking up to this worldview from this worldview. Right. And now this one's right. And one of the things that has been prompting this is something that Thoreau wrote in Walden because he talks about awakening, but the line was moral reform is the effort to throw off sleep. Ooh, so that. I'm starting to see the necessity of a morality in terms of if we have that moral development then it's okay if we don't know things that mm -hmm. we're still going to be good people. <laughs> mm. you know? Yeah. I, 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 I like where you're going with that. And I would agree with you. And I would say in terms of my, what's informed that view for me is spiritism. Spiritism mm. is a type of spiritualism that's very popular in Latin American countries. And um, it, it basically the, I've, it's right off the top of my head, but the book, the spirits book was written by right. <clears throat> this man who Alan Kardak was his mm. pen name. And he basically took, had these questions asked by multiple seance groups and he would pose different questions and the, these answers would come back and he'd match them. Like he did it in a scientific way. Like, Oh, the same answer comes back by similar spirits. Mm, yeah. And what, what came out of it was this codified book was codification of this worldview. And it basically talks about what happened, why we're here, the purpose of life progression, you know, our spirits are evolving to a higher level. And the spiritist belief is that it takes both information and knowledge as well as moral development for us right. to get to that next level that is when we're going to get to that you know wake that enlightenment phase that you know in the spiritist worldview it's like it, it kind of is like an idea of the multiverse that the earth itself is a lot evolving too and it's there's going to be a split there's gonna and i would be like oh this is kind of woo woo like deep stuff but 
in a way, we're kind of seeing that now with people living in alternative realities, like two very vastly different <laughs> yeah. beliefs. But in the end, like, as you said, I believe the same thing that it's a long, it's the long haul. It's like mm -hmm. lifetimes, like it's going to be, we're doing this work now and we're trying to help other people kind of come to a, a healthier worldview because that's what our spirits have been called to do because in the next lifetime, in the next incarnations, like it's going to take probably like two, 300 years before, before a new paradigm really emerges. I mean, what do they last? Like it could, a new paradigm could be thousands of years. You know, we don't know, you know, what, what, how long it will be, but hopefully I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, that we're going to, to survive it, but it's, it's definitely going to be tough. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had hope. I ask that sometimes when I have guests on and we're talking about environmental issues, always like, do you have hope? I do have hope. I do have hope and I do. And you know why? Because when I look at the youth, they're giving me hope. They're mm. impassioned. They're, they're, they're informed. They're creating, you know, they're looking at things differently. They're looking at gender differently. Yeah. You know, they're looking at it in a, in a non-binary way. That's challenging conditioning. I mean, it's pretty powerful. They're very engaged environmentally. I mean, I talk about that as the opening part of my book that I was so inspired by, the Greta Thorn Thornburg and yeah. all of her generation. There's a lot of people, young people that are marching and, and protesting. They're, they're down in the Amazon. There's some young people that have been instrumental in getting laws passed to protect rivers and lands and mountains and stuff. You know, the indigenous people, like the, the youth are, this is their world. They know that they're going to inherit it from us. And they're not afraid to stand up. And, you know, the ones that are protesting against gun violence, they live through it, man. That's, they're going to school. They're, they've been afraid their whole life that they're going to get killed in school. Like we didn't live through that. Like they, they do. So, so I do have, have hope from the youth. I look yeah. at them and those are my children's age. And I just, I just really hope that their passion will help to create a new world yeah. and discard what isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so as well. My, my major concern with all of this is the education that they're receiving because, yeah. you know, they have all this passion and I can speak of this from, as a, from, you know, the educator's point of view is that often it seems to me that education is just training them into this earth killing system. Yes. And, you know, they can go into school, you know, into colleges and yeah. have all that passion, but then they're just trained to be cogs in this machine. And I think that part of this, we have to, I know this is a diversion <laughs> from everything, mm -hmm. but I think that we really do need to rethink our education systems. You know, what do we mean by education? Is it, mm -hmm. it shouldn't just be training. You know, absolutely can... i mean i agree with you you know for so long you're either teaching to the test or trying yeah. to create consumers or creating people that you know work in the system right yeah. but you know critical thinking can make a big return here yeah. and i think i think a lot of it is access to information too now we know the internet is both wonderful and terrible at the same time like there is information out there and i think you know i think people are you know young people especially they're thinking about everything differently. They're thinking about war, the workplace. They're thinking about the family structure. They're thinking about education itself. I mean, there's, you know, homeschooling. It's, there's a lot of people that are doing it terribly, but there's people that are doing it well as well. Okay. And there's other, other types of schools like the Waldorf school and some others that are creating different models for teaching. You know, in my book, I talk about the 
I think she called it the talking sticks school, but this school that's created by one of the women that I interview, she is a Maori and they are doing an amazing job over there, reclaiming their culture and integrating their cultural belief and worldview into the system. And the way she explains, it, it's just like the young people are teaching the old people, you know, and, and re-engaging them in nature, you know? Yeah. 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 And it, and it takes educators to do that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's the role of elders. And you yes. talk about the importance of elders because the elders right. aren't just the teachers, but they are role models. Right. They're supposed to model this great behavior. And often I don't see that in traditional academia because everyone's in bed, even academia now is just this exploitative system. That few question. Right. Not only is it exploitative, it's extremely out of reach for most people. I yeah. mean, let's it's now an elite thing. Nobody could afford yeah. to go to many, many people cannot afford to go to college, even if they can go in. But what's great are people learning. People are learning in different ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. people are looking and learning in different ways. And and that's the kind of thing that I think we need to kind of look at intentional communities, intentional schools, people that are doing independent study. You know, and, and as you said, creating being models, just knowing that if, you, if you're in a position of any way that you're influencing others, it's important to be to look at yourself. You know, I was talking to a minister, actually, because some of my clients, even though I'm, you know, non-Christian, I, I, I am interspiritual. So I have clients of all backgrounds that I do spiritual counseling with. And she's amazing. She's written a book. I, I don't want to give her name, but let's just say that she was struggling with, you know, how do I how can I be, you know, minister i don't want to be out front i i hate people that are, are hypocrites she said you know and she's a real woman that's that's spiritual and godly and she i said well it's self-reflection like if uh, is, is it true you know are what is what you're saying what you're doing is it true can you check with yourself you know first of all we're all human like that idea of putting the priest which is the evolution of shaman on a pedestal has to come down right. you know and and any time any role that you're on a pedestal is like that even more so the reason we have to you know see who we are and be honest and really like yeah i'm human yes i have flaws flaws but what could i do to improve because it's my work is more important than just me and my ego right 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 which takes us back to that moral development right yep exactly uh, the idea of community and i agree with you how crucial that is to all of this and something that I've thought about, and this is in connection with what you wrote, is that, you know, pagans gather and feast. And you <laughs> said that this is the original sense of communion. It's the essential aspect of celebration that we become as kin. And that's something that I really like, especially because I think it opens up a way of communication with other traditions. And mm. what I think about in specifically is in Christianity and also in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And there's a fancy academic term for this. It's called commensality, mm -hmm. which is essentially the way I always phrase it is, who do you break bread with? And I think that's really one of the most powerful aspects of the teaching of Jesus is that yeah. he broke bread with everybody. Everyone sure, exactly. was welcome to the table. And right. the Buddha did the exact same thing. He's like, oh, this caste system, nonsense everyone's welcome to my table. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, I am so in agreement with you that communion, that coming together, that sitting together, that talking together. I mean, we know like when when people fear other the other, it's because they don't know them. They don't sit down with them. They don't interact. They don't sh come with respect and just just curiosity, right? One of the things that I love to do, and I'm looking forward to doing it, and I'm going to give a workshop there, is the Parliament of the World's Religions, mm -hmm. which is coming this this summer in Chicago in August. Mm -hmm. And it is a beautiful example of the world's religions, people from all over the world, from all backgrounds and traditions coming to break bread, to share practices, to discuss important matters of the world, and to, to be part of the change. And it's inspired me. I've gone like twice now, and I'm looking forward to going again. I'm really honored to be able to, to present my book and the ideas in my book and, and a workshop for others there, because that's what we need. You know, Gabor Mate, who's done some amazing work in addiction, says that the the cure for addiction is not abstinence. It's it's coming together. It's being together. It that's what we're you know that is the the soul wound that you refer to. That soul wound comes from loneliness. It's from disconnected, not only from the planet, from nature, from other beings, but also from each other. And that's what the Western individualist culture ha has has. That's what mm -hmm. it's given us. That's the child of that. That's the whole that people want. So, you know, in terms of creating community, like pagans come together, I mean, people creating communities that they feel at home in mm -hmm. is a start. And then from there, like having pods that can interrelate yeah. with each other. It's it's just like a beautiful vision if you really think about it. And I know for some people, oh, that's simplistic or that's, you know, pie in the sky or Pollyanna or whatever. It's like, why? You know, why does it have to be that way? Why are you, why are we so cynical? Yeah, yeah. When I see so much of our current situation really focused on that individuality. I mean, you know, we just heard stories, you know, the past week or two of, people getting murdered just by ringing the wrong doorbell and right. people defending. And, you know, and I see that that's, you know, they're acting out of that individualism and they've put up this border, this boundary around themselves. Stand and, your ground. Yeah. And, and I can speak from personal experience that, you know, I've always been very uncomfortable with like just going up to a group of strangers. I've yeah. really broken down a lot of my barriers that I can actually have conversations with total strangers now. <laughs> but I remember when I was a grad student, I went to Nepal. It was the first time I went to Nepal and I went as a part of a group. And I remember being asked during an interview what my major concern was. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it's being with the other people because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, lone person. But yeah. what I found so incredibly enriching and on a soul level were our meals together. Yeah. You know, and so, I, and I've had that experience in other instances now, and I just recognize and honor the power, you know, people can say, well, it's just simplistic, but there yes. is something primal and something very human about sharing a meal. Yes, and on the at the parliament, the chic people serve everyone. Yeah. That is what they do. They have yeah. the langar, yeah. and I love that. Out of everything yeah. at all, I love to go. They wrap your head. You mm -hmm. all sit on the floor as equals. Right. Somebody brings you a plate of very humble food, but delicious, 
and it is the most it is that communion and yeah. it's everyone they feed the world that's yeah. their that's their gift to the world oh my goodness i never knew much about the chic mm -hmm. people until i went there and yeah. i was like wow yeah <clears throat> what a beautiful offering yeah yeah the common kitchen and they do that every day at the temple <laughs> the golden temple nice yeah thousands and thousands of people they feed so i i know that we're running out of time and i had one question <laughs> hopefully it's not <laughs> Your, your food's not going to burn, but, and I should have asked this way before now, but I wanted to ask about the title of the book, the metaphor of the cauldron, because like all metaphors, I think that this has multiple meanings to it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you if you could discuss, you can keep it brief since we're sort of at the end of time here, but how are you thinking about the cauldron? What, what does it mean also to relight the cauldron? Absolutely, the metaphor is a powerful and potent symbol of cross cultures. In the cultural background that I practice, both in my Wiccan tradition, I was dedicated to Carriagewin, who's the, the keeper of the cauldron in Celtic myth, to uh, in Lukumi, the cauldron, the caldero, is the vestibule for the Orishas that are the warriors. You receive that in one of the ceremonies. In, in Asian culture, in the Chinese system, it's the Dantians, right? The, the different parts of our body that hold the power, the one, the lower, the lower Dantian is where your chi is, right? So the cauldron for me is where mother earth keeps her chi. It's where she keeps her energy and it's her center. It's that fiery core, you know? So to me, like her belly is the cauldron mm -hmm. and relighting it is relight what's within us to give us that power and passion for life and to change things and to be part of the shift and also to help her get her strength back up. And couldn't the cauldron also be where we stir our stews to feed everyone at our common tables? Absolutely. That's a, that's <laughs> absolutely true. Right. Because we nourish ourselves from the cauldron. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, Nick. yeah. 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 Very good. Very good. Well, I have two final questions for you. One is what do you have coming up next? You mentioned that you're going to the world parliament of religion in Chicago and you'll be doing a workshop there. What else? Well, what else is I'm finishing graduate school. <laughs> I, I am so excited to be getting my degree. I'll be finished in August. So Congratulations. After, thank you so much. You know, I, I really, I, it's in clinical counseling so that I, you know, when I started doing interspiritual counseling, I realized I loved it. I was working at Omega, the Omega Institute at the time. And I was like, you know, I really feel the need to do this work for others that are, you know, have are suffering right now which right now we have a mental health crisis. So I will be working at a, a family services, which is a local community mental health center. And I'm looking forward to that. But spiritually, like I, I have monthly circles that I do here at what we call our home, which is Soul Blossom Center. We, you know, we meet once a month on Zoom. It's, uh, they can find me on Facebook at Soul Blossom Center and also my website, soulblossomcenter.com. And I'm hoping to teach also at One Spirit Learning Alliance, where I was ordained this coming year. So we'll see. To be okay. revealed after I'm done with grad school. I don't want to sign okay. up with anything too, too yeah, much. But yeah. again, people can find me at soulblossomcenter.com. Great. Yeah. I, I can speak from experience that grad school is a job of work. 
yeah. and and you answered my second question because I wanted to ask where people can find out more about you. And I had the soulblossomcenter.com and I was going to ask if that was the best place and you already answered that. So awesome. Well, Wendy, it was an absolute delight to speak with you. I feel that I could speak with you for quite a bit more time. But, it did uh, go you know, fast. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. But I am so grateful for this opportunity and very grateful for the work that you're doing. And I really do encourage people to get a copy of your book, Relighting the Cauldron. Thank you so much, Nick. And I just want to say, listening to your podcast from last week about ancestry, I'm just so touched and amazed that you are a descendant of Cotton Mather. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And you've done your work, your ancestral work. So here we yeah. are, yeah. a witch and a, and a mather. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story wow. right there. Yeah. yeah. I also recently discovered that I am the sixth cousin removed from Winston Churchill. Amazing. So yeah, yeah, I love doing all the genealogy work. Ancestry and, um, work is really powerful. Yeah, I, yeah, I really, yeah. if anything, if I could tell anybody, do something that could really help ground you in in your power and your work. Mm -hmm. Do your ancestry work. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's really important in a couple of ways. One is that we are the ancestors. Yes. For the future generations. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a way to connect us with everything. I like Brian Swim, who did work with Thomas Berry. Mm. One of the things that he says is the stars are our ancestors. Yeah. I love and it's that. that idea that we're made of stardust, you know, what Sagan used to say. Yeah. And I think that I agree with you that opening up to the ancestors can open us up to these greater connections. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 85 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work and show me a little love, then please consider becoming a patron. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be incredibly, tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, coworkers, even um, anyone that you think that will enjoy it. And please share it on social media, too. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me spread the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.